Hey, good morning, afternoon. We're going to be discussing in this class is a in line with what's called Jewish self-development we're going to try to explore three of the primary traits that the Torah defines as defining a person's being and how their development should occur in a sequential fashion. So I realized there was a lot of words put together in one big sentence so I'm going to try and simplify it. There's three basic components that are looked upon as primary traits, primary defining points of a being, of a person, of a human being. And the way those points are described are the first, they call it the most fundamental um, part of being is the desire to give to another. In the world of the positive traits, the desire to take of myself and to extend for the benefit of someone else. And in Hebrew that's called chesed. It's an expansion. It's taking the being who I am. It's an act of love and transferring something, conveying to another. That's on the one hand. The counterpart to that particular, particular trait is the ability to constrict, to hold back, to exercise self-discipline. And that in the word in Hebrew is called the power of constriction, is known as gvura, might, courage. So you've got these two opposite forces, both in line with the person's positive self-development. One is an expansive, reaching out to others, extending. But it doesn't really have boundaries, it doesn't really have a... Um, an inward focus. It's got a very outward focus. When it becomes too much, it can be self-destructive. And therefore a person needs to have something else, which is this ability to contain and to restrain and to overcome the desire to respond and to expand. And that's called Gvura. And then there's a third, there's a third component which balances out the other two. And this is called, this is called the... Uh, it can be referred to as MS or Tiferes. It's the aesthetic balance of symmetry whereby a person finds the music inside of self where the expansive component and the constriction are perfectly weighted so neither one goes beyond its boundaries. It's a basic format. And in terms of historically, the different patriarchs of the three patriarchs represent those three different character traits. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Avraham embodies the trait of kindness, of chesed. First of all, he was the first one that stretched out, reached out, gave to others. And classically, his presentation in the text of the Bible is the giver. One of the points in the Bible, one of the stories, which are, which you know, and you, if you think about it, when you get into the symbiotic relationship between the oral and the written Torah and you see how every letter of every word is precious and then you see the amount of text that the deeds of Abraham's kindness take up 
So then you appreciate the power of the emphasis of those in terms of the Jewish psyche of Avram being the pillar of what's called chesed of kindness. These three strangers wander into his vicinity, he's deathly ill, he's recovering from his, he's recovering from his surgery and in the heat of the day he runs out to them and prepare, prepares for them a feast. It's the absolute emphasis of the epitome of kindness. The other the other side of the spectrum is his son Isaac Yitzchak, whereby he's 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 not the kind of person that reaches out. Reaches out. The descriptions in the Chumash, in the five books of Moses, of him are more about what his his ability to self-sacrifice, to restrain his impulses in order to serve a higher force, to belong to Hashem and higher ideal. And then the final of the three patriarchs is Yaakov, that he becomes um, the one that synergizes his two ancestors and he embodies the trait of balance, of truth, of emes, teiten, chesed l'avram, v'emes Yaakov. Now what's interesting is the Gemara, the Gemara, the Talmud describes different physical geographical features and attaches them to each one of the patriarchs. It describes Abraham as a mountain, Isaac as a field, and Jacob as a house. And if you work on a metaphorical level about what a mountain is, what a field is, and what a house is, it gives us insight into how these traits work. The way um, we see a mountain is it's a bulge in the land. Normally the land is flat. Plateau. A mountain is when the land starts to rise and it creates a point, it creates a, um, an extension beyond what's called the line of the land. The notion of chesed can also be expressed of giving as extending oneself beyond the letter of the law. The whole way that the community functions is when people depart from legalistics and engage in relationships. Relationships begin where legality ends. In other words, if I owe you this and I give it to you, that's legality. If I have no owed, I don't owe this to you anyway and I give it to you, that's a relationship, that's love. Love is based on doing things that you don't have to do, no one demands you to do, there's no obligation to do them. It's completely above and beyond the letter of the law. Of the law. So the notion of chesed is an extension beyond the letter of the law. In Hebrew it's called lifni mishurat hadin. The law is considered a line because it delineates a parameter. And chesed is when you go beyond the delineation. So when you want to initiate a relationship, you don't ask, is this required of me? You focus on the other and say, what do they need? What do they want? And you are able to extract yourself from yourself and extend yourself to another. That's where a relationship begins. And that's why the Mishnah in Pirka Avot, in the Ethics of the Fathers, when it describes the trait in the following way, Sheli sheli veshelach shelach. What's mine is mine and what's yours is yours, which seemingly is describing as praiseworthy description of legal adherence, the Mishnah degrades it as being the trait which was shared by the people who inhabited the city of Sodom, which was destroyed. In other words, when you have a society which functions completely on legalistics, there's no charity, there's no give, and that obstructs any kind of human relationships. So the first point is the mountain. Avram Avinu is a mountain because he extends 
way above and beyond the letter of the law. He's the extension, the expansion of self. You get out of your own narrow confines and you're able to reach out to others. And that's the starting point. And that's the most basic thing. And in terms of what the, the book that we're all studying, it's called Derech Hashem. He says, that was the, we can't understand much about it, but the one thing we can sta- understand about the creation of the world is that what it was. What created the world was Hashem, the Creator, saying, I need to explode my kindness onto another, and that facilitated the creation, and therefore the most fundamental thing we know about the creation of the world is it came from a trait of chesed. And there's going to be this continued accompaniment of the traits that we experience internally and the reflection of them in the divine. But the most fundamental of everything is chesed. Moving on to the next stage, it's when you need to limit that chesed. You need to you need to give it some type of framework. So Isaac is compared to a field. A field has many different components to it. One of the components are the boundaries are delineated. It's this far and it's no further. It has a sense of belonging. And also, it has a purpose to it, which is a very give-and-take purpose. It's not a, a field is a means of producing, producing money. It's a transaction. As I give this, you give that to me. So then you're entering into a different kind of world. This is already the world of Din. The world whereby things are, they do have a framework. Because if you live in the world of Chesed, it can be completely counterproductive and you can end up becoming self-destructive because you're giving too much. There also has to be reciprocity. There has to be a give and take. There has to be a worldly engagement. So you need to have this delineated, I owe you this, and I don't owe you a penny more. You owe this to me. They need to. They can't be the whole thing because then you revert to a kind of relationless kind of society. But there has to be a component. And finally, you've got this ability to to straddle those two competing worlds. Those two competing worlds need to be straddled by what's called the trait of Emmet, where you know exactly how much of this to give, how much to give, and how much to move forward. Moving back moving forward, moving back. And you'll find that all the character traits are either expansive or constrictive, both in the positive and the negative. So for example, they can often be embodied by literal physical body movements. There's two great examples of this in terms of the traits of an expansive trait. It's known as simcha or joy, and a constrictive state, which is known as, let's say, contemplation thinking. So deep thought, which is very reflective, it's introspective, and deep joy, which is explosive, is expansive, carry with them, within our actual body movements, manifest those two ideas. For example, if I'm happy what do my limbs do when I'm happy? Yof? That's what your limbs do. But, uh, jump around and dance. Jump around and dance. Meaning, you've got this normal way of, you've got a normal like uh, a radius where you move your body within. It's pretty limited. When you are happy, you try to break the boundaries. You go, yes! You jump, you try to move yourself, you try to expand. What happens when you're introspective and reflective? You curl inside because the movement is an inward movement. The movement of joy is an expansive movement. You stretch out. 
So different traits have different, different, different textures, different flavors, and different movements. Fundamentally, chesed is expansive, you're stretching out to another. Fundamentally, gvur is constrictive, you're going into yourself, you're holding back. And the ultimate is a synergy between these two points, which is called, which is called MS. Now, I want you to just trace this through the life cycle. Because in the life cycle, they're sequential. And I'm basing this on, on a work which studies an essay of someone called um, Red Sodoka Koyen, who is a, a major thinker in the 1700s, I believe. Maybe a little bit after that, late 1700s, early 1800s. And he, he writes this as a, there's a series of way people should progress. And he says that the first stage the person needs to come into contact with is chesed. And in chesed, the first stage of nurturing is self-nurturing. That if a person doesn't learn to nurture themselves, they'll never be able to graduate to the second stage, which is being able to nurture others. And the third stage, which is the ability to nurture oneself and others at different times. And the fourth stage, which is a synergy whereby nurturing oneself becomes nurturing others. And I'll explain what I mean by those four stages. Stage number one, they correspond to the life cycle. Stage number one is self-nurturing. When a child is born in a um, good enough situation, in a standard, which in a functional situation, there's a relationship which is initiated between mother and child. And that, na- that relationship manifests as one of the child is nurtured. The relationship, the mother is the nurturing aspect and the child learns the lesson of self-nurture. When a need is expressed by the child, the need is applied. And the child learns in the early stages of infancy to understand his own needs and to have those needs fulfilled. And therefore, that initial place, that initial contact with the mother, where the mother assures the child and, beck- and hears the child's cry and responds to the child's cry, the child is able to form up a system which is, my needs are important, they need to be ad- addressed. And there'll be someone that will fill those needs. And when the child does that in a healthy upbringing, so then the first point of chesed is imparted into the child's psyche, which is the need for self-nurture. Now what happens when that need is neglected? And let's say a child is neglected and doesn't get their nurturing. So in, in terms of, first of all, from, from a, a neurological perspective, the kind of neural development that occurs through those interactions of the, the child-mother is phenomenal. And children which are neglected, even though they're fed, but if they're fed with bars, they aren't given the human care component, there's a high mortality rate. Because the actual neglect can bring to literal death, even though they're completely nourished. So what happens if a person at that point of their life, let's say, is deprived of the initial motherly contact? So what happens is, the system that's built into their head, if they're getting it partially and not in a good enough way, is that my needs will not be satisfied, my needs are not important, and they don't need to be dealt with. And if a person grows up with that, so then it creates a deep sense of vacuum within inside of the person, and it also, it also carries out in a projective way 
to those around. In other words, once my needs aren't important, I can't fathom that your needs are important. Because I, no, I have no conceptual basis for it. There's no system in place. So if I don't acknowledge the importance and the preeminence of my own needs, there's no way I can ever come to care for someone else. So stage number one, both in the life cycle and in the development of self, is you have to take care of your own needs. You have to be able to give to yourself. You can't ever give to anyone else until you can give to yourself. Until you can acknowledge there's something here that I need and I need to recognize it. And when the little baby inside of self cries, if you're deaf to those cries, you will never ever be able to care for another person. You can affect care, you can pretend, you can fake it, but it's not going to be real. Because you don't know what it means to respond to need. If you can't respond to your own needs, you can't respond to anyone else. So in the life cycle and in the development of the first part of the trait that we need to work on chesed, the crucial thing is hearing your own cries and responding to self-nurturing. And if we didn't have the mothers that we should have had, so then you have to take that role right now and right here. And you have to be able to respond to yourself and with a delicate voice. And a lot of this revolves in terms of the inner dialogue, the self-talk that we go through. Because when we haven't had this experience and we weren't nurtured as children, so then the self-talk can be extremely hard, critical self-talk. And when needs are expressed from inside of us, there's a voice which can suppress those needs and deny those needs. And the person has to learn, and we'll, at some point we'll have to go into how a person learns the art of a healthy and recuperative self-dialogue. But if those voices inside are denying a person's basic needs, so then, so then they actually apprehend, arrest the process of growth beyond it. So step number one, which corresponds to the infancy stage, is the acknowledgement that I have needs and those needs to be, need to be nurtured. The first person you do chesed to is you do chesed to yourself. And until you've done chesed to yourself, you can't progress. Step number one is chesed. And step number one of chesed, you're a baby, you've got to give yourself. The baby is not a moral being. It's a being that needs. And we've got a baby inside of us. We have to respond to the infant inside of ourselves. That's number one of chesed. Number two of chesed, which corresponds to the stage of early socialization, is a child suddenly realizes, two, three years old, that there's people around. There's a world. And slowly but surely, the child goes out of that completely self-dominated universe and starts to go into a world where they're friends. And then those first interactions for the child are extremely painful because the child is coming from a place of only self-nurture. So when I have a toy, this toy is mine and it's only mine, it will always be mine and I'm not going to give it to you and I'm not going to share with it. Share you with it. And that's <laughs> my daily experience at home. <laughs> give me mine! Come home and in my mind I'm going to open the door and a whole line of children are going to be perfectly dressed and they're going to be saying there, Hi Dad! Want some tea? So that's what happens, as, that's what I'm thinking in my head as I walk up the stairs. I've got the smile plastered onto my face. Hi honey! I'm home! And then I hear, Ah! Why did you do that? And I see this in front of me. Mayhem! Mayhem! And as one child holds the other child by the leg, <laughs> swinging him around gently, I start to think to myself, hmm, a whiskey would go down well now. So, that's that first, that first like rough interaction where the child is exposed to the other, and all of a sudden, 
there's this idea to take that self-nurturing that I've experienced and to try to nurture another. And that initial process is painful. But slowly through childhood, early childhood, later childhood, entering into adolescence, a person develops the capacity to give to others. But that capacity is balanced because the child is still in the home. And it still has the nurturing influences of the parents. So the mother's still, and the father's still acting as giving, 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 giving to a child. And the child's taking, 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 taking. And the child's outputting, and the child's outputting in a different place. So there's not really a, there's not really a, a balance between the areas of output and the areas of input. The areas of input are in the home, and outside, slowly but surely, the child becomes a giver outside of the home. And that's why you can find children who in the home are uncooperative, they're really not helpful, they don't do anything, and outside they're these incredibly giving, involved, dynamic people, because they haven't yet managed to create that balance internally of you can do both at the same time. So they, they give segregated rights to different parts of their life. In this, in this part of my life, I'm a taken, I take and I take and take, and then part of my life I'm a giver. So that takes you from infancy to adolescence to early adulthood. Now what happens in marriage is then you start to experience both of those at the same time. Because in marriage you're creating a dynamic between where you have to be able to be nurtured and you have to be able to be nurtured. And both of those take place in the same relationship. So you have to be able to give and you have to be able to receive. If you can't receive, so then there can be no give and take within the relationship. If you can't give, so then it will destroy the connection between you. So marriage is when you take both of those and now you find them in a single context. And that's the next stage of development, from infancy to childhood adolescence and then to marriage, where now within this one relationship you're experiencing both sides. It's no longer segregated and divided between some of it over here and some of it over there. It's all in one gamut where you put together this, you sometimes you need to take for yourself, you need to be nurtured, other times you need to nurture. And putting those together, that's called the marriage and that's called the synergy between the two divergent parts, which again corresponds back to our original model of the three forefathers, the field, the mountain is Avram, the field is Isaac, is Yitzchak, and Jacob is called the house, because he creates the balance, marriage is always the balance between the house, the home contains the male and the female aspects as they fuse, they synergize in giving and receiving the balance between one power and another. Just, just to finish off the point and go to the fourth level before we take questions. So then, that's the third level. Now the fourth level is the level of, let's say, transcendence. What happens is, as a person develops and gets used to being able to contain with himself the multiple dimensions of giving and receiving until they become integrated so then the next stage is considered transcendence it's where you're able to actually go to the point where your need is fulfilled by fulfilling the needs of others that's that then in Judaism would be considered what's called kedusha um, it's a hard word to translate, but it means you take the moment and you expand it beyond the here and now. It's something which, is, which relates to a bigger, bigger, bigger picture, a bigger, a, bigger, a bigger sphere, bigger realm. So in other words, no longer does my need 
get satisfied by me taking something which is going to nourish me, but the nourishment that I need is extending myself to another. And you see great people where they and that goes back to Avram Avinu, that his need was his in desperate pain. And it was the heat of the day. But it was important for him to go and help others. Because it had become so entrenched with him, the ability to give, is that he felt fulfilled by fulfilling others. And that in Chesed is the fourth and the most elevated stage. So in terms of progressing in self-development, in the first trait which we're discussing right now, which is a trait of Chesed, it starts off with an infant-like self-nurturing. It progresses to self-nurturing in one area, to nurturing others in another. It then moves on to the third stage, which is nurture, being nurtured and nurturing others. And finally, it goes to the stage where my nurturing is the nurturing of others. That's how I become inspired. That's what gives me what I need. And that's a progression of a person as they move up the rungs of this ladder of chesed. And now let's answer a couple of questions. Josh. Um, with a, a, a ditch or something like that be a better analogy for... Uh, well, a ditch is like, you know, you don't want something to be descendant. You want it to be defined. It's not, it's not, it's not going down. It's become, it's not, it's the opposite of expansion. The opposite of expansion is the limitations. It goes beyond this point and no further. That's what Din is. This, this is where the line is. Or in Senate Brooklyn accent, I think it goes something like this. There's the line! I think so. Can't be sure. Boundaries. Is, is on a vertical, on I mean, a horizontal plane. Yes. You ha- you happy with that? Yeah. Okay, good. Zach. Uh, what do you define as basic needs? So it's quite interesting. The basic needs aren't only physical needs. They're also, in other words, the, the, the relationship with self, with the way, it just, you know, a great analogy is you see how a mother t- treats a child. A, a good mother doesn't, doesn't give in to a child's self-destructive needs. A need is something which, if a, and so for example, if a child's hungry and you don't feed the child, so then you're not responding to need. If a child's overfed and you feed the child further, then indulgence is not helpful. So the relationship we have to ourselves is appreciating our needs, but it doesn't mean self-pampering. It doesn't mean indulgence. It, we've discussed this in other places, but uh, how do you define that? Where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line between needs and pampering. So uh, one, a good analogy is a good analogy is drawn by how you feel afterwards. If something's a need and it's filled, you feel great afterwards. If something is a pampering and it's filled, you feel desperate afterwards for more. So when you're hungry and you eat, you feel satiated. When you're not hungry and you eat, you feel like you need to eat something more. Which is one of the things I described to you is my, my voyage to the fridge. You know, when I'm looking for that thing. I need that thing in the fridge. I mean, I find it. It's in the back of the fridge and it's that chocolate yogurt. So I eat it. And then I figure out, no, it wasn't. I need, didn't need something sweet. I need something salty. So then I look for the, the, the potato crisps. And then I find them and I eat them. I'm feeling progressively sicker, but I still need something else. And so I forget the And so on and so on and so on and so on. And so on and so on and so on. Okay, gentlemen, we have run out of time. Thank you for your attention and looking forward to continuing tomorrow. Thank you very much.